I remember when I got to a high school, I said, dad, I want a car. My dad went, awesome. You need a job. And he cut a deal with me. He said, if you want a car, you get a job, you pay for the car and I will pay for the insurance. That was the deal. And that's what we did. And that did teach me some pretty good responsibility. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hey there, welcome back. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Mike Van Pelt. Mike works with men. He's an author, speaker, and leads men's life coaching groups. He's the founder of True Man Life Coaching and the host of the True Man Podcast, where I got to be a guest recently, and I hope you'll go check out my episode. Mike, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Man, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me in. I'm excited to have you, man. First, let everyone know where you call home and where you're connecting from. Yeah. So my wife and family were just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, in the Kennesaw Marietta area. Really beautiful area. It's summertime, so it's hot Atlanta is what we go by this time of year. And humid Atlanta. Yeah. Well, right now it's very, yeah, it's, you know, it's summer. So it is what it is in the South, right? You take what you can get. So I have my wife, Jill and I, we just celebrated 27 years of marriage. And on that very day, we dropped our daughter off at college. So I have my daughter's a freshman in college. My son's a sophomore. And, you know, we're, we're at this interesting stage in our life where, you know, <laughs> the kids are moving out. We're taking our, making sure that our parents are comfortable where they are. And it's that weird change of season that we sometimes go through in life. Right. Mm. So. But did, yeah. you, did you grow up there or did you grow up somewhere else? So I grew up in central Iowa. I'm, a, I'm an oh. Iowa boy. Now I grew up in a big city of 13,000 people. So, you know, people ask me all the time, now are you a farm kid? And I've spent a lot of time on farms, but I was a city kid in a big city of metropolitan city of 13,000 people. So, yeah. We didn't talk about this. I'm from Rapid City, South Dakota, also from a massive city of, I think at the time it was like 40,000 people. Massive, huge. Yeah. I've been to Rapid City, believe it or not. So there you go. So many people have. It's like a place (laughs) because you went to Mount Rushmore, so you had to drive through Rapid. Yeah. You know, and on the way through the, oh man, I had some friends that went to school in South Dakota. The hay capital of the world is, I do remember driving through this place called the hay capital of the world. Yep. A lot of hay. So growing up in Iowa, I'm guessing the lessons would be different than growing up in in Georgia, but what did you learn about money and entrepreneurship when you were growing up? Now it's funny, mom, do not listen to this podcast. You're not going to you're not going to like my answer. You know what? I didn't really realize this until later in life that I maybe had some mixed feelings about money. And part of it stems from like these old sayings that your parents sometimes say like, well, money doesn't grow on trees. My mom used to say all the time, we can't sit in front in church. That's where all the rich people sit. So I, which was an interesting one. I don't know why she said that. And then I, to this day, I have a tendency to always go to the back of wherever I'm sitting almost unconscious. Although these days I chalk it up to hearing loss, but maybe that's beside the point, but I didn't really realize some of the views that had seeped into my unconscious about money 
until really my adult life. And it really started to show up as an entrepreneur and the way that I thought about money and the universe. And I've really had to change my thinking now I, because I had to come to that understanding. So now I view money as something that easily comes to me. I try to think of it that way rather than repelling it away from me. But well, so let me tease that. Tease, why uh-oh. were you repelling it away from you? What was the cause? I, of that? I think it was unconscious. I think that I had a negative view of money. I wanted money like we all did, like we all do, right? I mean, you need money to live, but I don't think I had a positive perspective of money. Is that the parable? Rich person, eye and needle? I, I hadn't really thought of that. Interesting. I think that's where I got the negative view was that parable grown up in the Lutheran church was a rich person. What is it? It's easier for a rich person to get through the eye of the needle than it is for, no, it's, richer, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get into heaven. I think that's the phrasing or something like that. Yeah. I, and you know, I think that that's really interesting. That's not where I got it actually, but I mean, you and I both kind of hung around the Lutheran church. So, I, you know, I think that it was from the perspective of if I look at it, like I can't sit up front because I don't have the money. It's almost like, well, I don't have money. I'm never going to have money. So I can't sit up front. And, you know, and then sometimes you allow that whole idea in church of, you know, well, money is evil. Right. Well, money's evil if that's what you believe in, but money's not evil when it can be used to serve God's kingdom. And that that's a very important piece that sometimes gets left off the table. And it's not, and I would say that the phrase is actually not that money is evil. It's that the love of money is evil. It's like making money your idol is evil. And there's plenty of parables, biblical parables that are, you know, the golden calf and all there's all that kind of stuff that talks about the wealth is not good. So there's a lesson in the Christian church about wealth being bad. Do you think that when your mom said, Hey, we can't sit up front. Do you think that was a, we don't deserve to sit up front. And that sort of translates into that a little bit. You know, I grew up in the eighties and in a town of about 13,000 people. So, I mean, we were middle-class best, right? But everybody around me was the same way. So I didn't necessarily have my perspective of what wealth was much different. Now, one of the things I vividly remember because back in the eighties, when the leather, white leather Nike Cortez shoes came out and everybody was getting them. Well, Mike had to get those Nike Cortez shoes as well, but my parents weren't going to spend a hundred bucks on a pair of shoes. Okay. But when I finally got those Nike Cortez shoes, I slept with them. That's how much it meant to me, which seems kind of funny to say out loud, but I just did. We all have our thing, dude. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, that's what it meant to me. And, you know, really, I just thought everybody around me was the same way. And so I didn't necessarily think about who was rich or who was poor. I knew whose dad owned the car dealership down the street and, you know, whose dad was the attorney. But my view of them was we're equals, you know? What did your mom and dad do? Or what did your, your mom work? Did your dad work? What did they do? Yeah. So for much of my life, my dad was in the insurance business, as a matter of mm-hmm. fact. And then he 
I spent 20 some odd years working in the postal service. My mom, while I was growing up, was a stay-at-home mom for a while. And then she she was a business owner for about 10 years or so. So, you know, I, my parents were very active in our lives. They never missed a ball game. They were at every school event. I mean, that was just what I grew up around. They were very supportive of us. And I, you know, honestly, I think that's just part of the Midwestern values that I grew up around. And yeah, I remember. I, mean, I can't remember anybody else really even being any different. I mean, that's, it just was what it was. I, the thing that stuck out for me was I also knew the attorney and I also knew the guy that owned the companies and that my dad would always be really grubby and he'd work really hard. And I remember he would come to the event, the game or whatever. He'd be in his overalls. He'd be covered <laughs> with stuff and dirty. And the other guy's dads would be, you know, in their suits and their ties and stuff. And then after the game, the other guy's dads would go home for family dinner. And my dad would go back to work. Like that's, I remember that, like working really, really, really hard. Well, there's something to be said for that in the Midwest, especially, you know, around the farms. I mean, back in the day and these really the family farm that I grew up around doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, these are mega operations going on in a lot of cases. But I mean, you know, when you're in rural, a rural city in the Midwest, I mean, you're working in the early in the morning, <laughs> you're going late at night you know, you could be responsible for livestock and they don't necessarily feed themselves, at least not the way we feed them in the Midwest. We really beef them up good, but you know, it's hard work. Yeah. Hey, I'm curious, how did the, how did those experiences of, Hey, I'm the same as you, your dad, you know, wears the suit. How did that experience translate into money beliefs later? And do you still carry that sense that we're all the same or are you seeing <laughs> the massive differentiation now? I do see the massive differentiation and I think it's because now when I was growing up, we didn't have all the toys, right? There was no cell phone. And if right. you needed to make a phone call, you either had to go to the principal's office or a pay phone, right? A pay phone for some of you people is where you stick a quarter or, you know, and so we just didn't have all the options. I remember when I got to a high school, I said, dad, I want a car. My dad went, awesome. You need a job. And he cut a deal with me. He said, if you want a car, you get a job, you pay for the car and I will pay for the insurance. That was the deal. And that's what we did. And that did teach me some pretty good responsibility. And, but I mean, I remember working in the grocery store. We didn't have all these things on the shelves. Like we used to you go into the store now, instant food products and all this stuff. I mean, it wasn't there. You picked A, B, or C, and that was your option, even right. for cars and all that. Now we have so much stuff, just stuff, and everybody gets stuff. And proof of that is, and I've as I've traveled around the country, I see the same thing going on everywhere. How about these storage facilities, massive uh -huh. storage facilities being built everywhere? I mean, climate controlled, you know, why is that? Because we have a lot of stuff. Yep. And I, it's one of the things I do with clients is you know, somebody's parents pass and the thing that they loathe to do, the thing that the client hates doing is going into the storage and cleaning all that out. And they have to, they got to go in and yeah. this half goes to the garbage. This half, this part goes to Goodwill. This is the stuff I'm going to give to the kids and the whatever, but it's just, we just, 
retain so much garbage. It's, it's, it's a lot. And so people have a lot of stuff, but on the flip side of that, you know, especially living in a large city, like I live in, if I go down to Atlanta, now I'm way outside the city downtown limits of Atlanta by design. But if I go to downtown Atlanta, I'm going to see a lot of poverty. I'm going to see people living on the streets, homelessness. And so, you know, there's, it feels like in my lifetime right now, I'm seeing the biggest gap between wealthy people and poor people. And the skeptical side of me says, well, this is by design. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to go down that road, but you want to explore that some, <laughs> well, I, you know, I think that there's a lot because we have so much wealth in the world because there's so much money and you see what m money does to politics. It skews mm. it. And so the very people that we should have faith and belief that every one of our lawmakers is fighting for us on a daily basis. I was at my North Cobb Rotary this morning. I sat right next to my state representative, who's a super nice guy. But, you know, we should have the faith and belief that our politicians are taking care of us. But it's hard to feel taken care of when they do book deal after book deal. They're on every show that pops up on the news. Why would you do that? Well, in my world as a coach and an author and a speaker, it's called marketing. Why do yep. you market? So you can make money. Yep. So I don't think that our founding fathers would have ever, there's no way they could have imagined the amount of wealth and things that are available, not just to the average person on the street, but our politicians. And I, there are things that have the appearance of being done for fear and control. There's Can I clean that up? No, that's I, we, we're, we're going to sort of steer back on, but there's something yeah. I want to say first. And that's, I think that, you know, 200 years ago, I think that you had the successful people of the day be appointed to run for office. Like they were run for, and they were like, ah, I'm busy. I'm doing this other stuff. And then they ran right. for office. I think today it's an avenue towards greater wealth. Being a politician yes. is not an avenue towards necessarily doing good, though I'm sure some people have that belief and they pursue that. It's also an avenue towards yep. greater wealth for yourself and your family. And I think that's the part that I find the most disturbing. And I, I'm not picking sides here. I think everyone- well, I agree. And the yeah. funny thing of it is you don't have to pick sides on that one. It's on yep. all sides. <laughs> it's universal. Yeah. But really, it's also the human condition because we see this difference, because we see all the inequality. You know, we do want to take care of me and mine. Like, that's the rule of the day. Like, how do I amass my own amount? And I'm, you know, frankly guilty of that. I want to make sure that my family's taken care of, right? For sure. Yeah. I'm in the same boat. But I also, you know, and I commonly tell people, I want to make an impact on the lives of men for good. Now, so I can't just do that for free. Just before we go there, I, I do. That's what I want to spend the bulk of time talking about is to work with men and, and sort of some of that stuff. But yeah, before we go there, I want to hear, and this is what most intrigued me about our last conversation was your relationship with, I think, a very successful woman and how that works at the home front. I, you, your wife's pretty high power, ah. right? So my wife has been a leader, a senior leader in the organization for a number of years. She was a C-level person. And I've taken a lot from that. Number one, her work ethic, not just professionally, but as a mom and all the things that she had to go through 
as a working woman in a high demand job and be a mom and be a wife at the same time is, is pretty incredible because, you know, she wasn't just responsible for, you know, myself, the dog and two kids. She was responsible for, <clears throat> you know, leading an organization. And at times that was very difficult. And, you know, part of our story, why I'm even in Atlanta is during COVID, her position was very unexpectedly, they removed the position for a time and turned it over to somebody else while they figured out <laughs> what the world of COVID was going to do to everything. And it really threw our lives in a tailspin, but we maneuvered through it. And I'm, ex I just, I can't even begin to tell you it. We landed on our feet here in Atlanta. She's got a new position, but I'm extremely proud of her and all of her accomplishments. And she deserves all the greatness that comes her way. And it's just been, you know, the, there were times when I was, her name is Jill. I was, you know, Mr. Jill that, I mean, people just knew me as Jill's husband. And, you know, at certain points that was not the easiest thing for me to go through, but yeah, I mean, it's been awesome, you know, to be by her side now for 27 years and see her maneuver through all this stuff. Yeah. You mentioned that the feeling that you got when you were at a party, when you were Mr. Mr. Jill, yeah. someone asked what you did, right? Can you just share that? Yeah. Well, there was a period of time where I was not happy with what I was doing professionally. And I was really trying to figure it out. I just could not fill that void inside of me of like, what's missing in my life? What's missing? And my wife at a certain point, because she had the job that she did said, Mike, why don't you stay home with the kids and figure out what you want to do? And I did that. I went back to college. I got my undergraduate degree and I really dove into the nonprofit world and was doing a lot in the community. I was doing a lot in my church. And I finally came to the conclusion, wow, I love the nonprofit world. I think I'm going to be probably, I could see myself being a nonprofit executive. This is just awesome. You know, you get to help people. And so I'm like, what's missing? I'm like, you know, I could use my master's degree. And I went back and got my master's degree. And there was this period of time in there where I was getting my education, I was getting certifications, I was a stay-at-home dad, but I wasn't, that void still was inside of me. And it's because, you know, a lot of us, not purposefully, you know, inadvertently were raised as men to be the primary caretakers of our family. And I thought I needed to be the breadwinner. So the challenge that I went through was I wasn't the breadwinner. I was a stay-at-home dad. And if people came up and asked me, because- mm. That's what they do. What's your name and what do you do? You know, I struggled and th there were times when I literally could not get anything out of my mouth. You know, I remember being at an event and my wife started speaking for me because I couldn't even say, you know, I didn't have an answer. And so it was a really, and as I went back out in the job market and tried to get a job, I heard a lot of no's. And then I internalized that and that was, I just completely lost my identity. And that's mm. the challenge that a lot of men have is their identity is in yep. what they do. Productivity. And, yeah. And so, you know, I really struggled for a period of time 
with my identity and who I was and what I wanted to be. So where, so a couple of things, where do you think we get that sense of our identity is tied to the work that we do? Thing one. Thing two is what other sort of indicators or markers of quote unquote success are there for men? <laughs> I mean, th these are the ones that they, when they come yeah. to you, and these are the markers, not after you've coached them. Well, I think we get, as men, we get wrapped up in our careers. Yep. That just becomes who we are. And I think that, you know, as people, we make assumptions about people. Oh, he's an attorney. He must have X, Y, and Z. Oh, he hauls garbage. So he probably lives in this piddly house. I mean, a lot of this is unconscious stuff that, you know, we think through, but I think for a lot of us, our identity is tied to our career. That's where we spend the most amount of time. That's where we, you know, work on whatever our craft is. You know, if you're a manager, you know, you want to be a better manager. And so that's where we get wrapped up in. And, you know, it becomes important. So, like in my case, my vision of where I saw myself because of what my skill level was, what I had the ability to do. The people around me were saying, Mike, we want you to serve on our board again. We love what you're doing. You know, you're a go-getter. You're, you know, they were telling me something. And yet when I went out to try to seek employment, it, they didn't marry up at all. And so, you know, my vision of who I thought I wanted to be was different than where I was. Not that there was anything wrong with being a stay-at-home dad, by the way. I look back on that very fondly now, and I wish I would have been more present. And some people would say, well, Mike, you were pretty present. But my mind was adrift a lot of times going, yeah, but you could have this yep. job, you know, or I want to do this, but I can't get this. How do I get that break? You know, and so... You know, I wish I, now I look back on it and I see where my kids are at and, and, you know, especially sending my daughter away to school last week. And, you know, those days, you know, are behind me now. So how much do you think you're at the party? You know, someone says, Hey, what do you do? If you just came right out and said, yeah, I'm a stay at home dad. Do you think there would be judgment if you just like carried that with pride? All internal? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And, you know, I think what happens with guys, right? We bury stuff. We don't want anybody to think that we're, you know, there's always these, this fear of shame yep. or guilt or, you know, whatever the case may be. Well, you don't want to tell somebody that you're a stay at home dad. You want to tell somebody you're, you know, I don't know what a great, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're, you know, you're it's the CEO of a company, you're this, you know, astronaut, yeah, you're you know, astronaut. something, you know, you want to say all that stuff, you know. And the funny thing of it is nobody ever had a negative comment. No. The f most of the time I got a lot of attaboys and yep. man, I wish I could stay home with my kids. Yep. You know, but on occasion there were comments that would come out. I remember we were going to get my wife a update and it was a luxury automobile and the guy didn't, the sales guy didn't mean anything by it, but he said, well, it must be nice to have a sugar mama. Oof. Now, in my position during that time, he probably couldn't have stabbed me in the heart any deeper. Yeah. And I just remember sitting in the back seat of the car going, dude, that's not what this is, you know? And so on occasion, there was stuff like that.
I remember being on a webinar with the university that I went to and I put a question in the chat. What do you do about extended, you know, jobs? How do you even begin to answer that? And the guy said, that was doing the webinar, he said, well, how long have you been out of work? And I put it in the chat and the guy goes, wow, when I see something like that, I think somebody's probably either had a drug problem or an alcohol problem. And I remember hearing that and it just like, no, that's not what's going on. And I remember just logging off, yeah, you know, the webinar and putting it away. And sadly, it's those little comments like that. Nobody meant anything by it, but it was those little pieces that kept coming at me that really stung. And well, it just it speaks to sort of a deep cultural gender bias and expectation. Yeah. I mean, it, I'm imagining your wife actually suffered from barbs all the time. Well, in, in a different yeah, in way. Same, yeah, you in know, a different way. There was, I remember a couple of times her saying, you know, Mike, I need you to go get the kids from such and such. I got a meeting tonight. I can't leave the meeting. And basically the point was I can't leave that meeting because then I'm the mom, yep. you know? So it's on both sides of the fence. And it's really been interesting to me, you know, as I reflect over all of that now that we've kind of gone through some of that stuff and really moved on, it gives me a really unique view and seat in looking at the world of masculinity and the world of, you know, all this, the stuff going on with women in terms of pay equity and all these things. So I've had a unique view of that and I'm glad I did because it really has opened my mind to what's going on. It's gave me a very realistic view of what's going on for yeah. sure. I, I'm actually really sort of excited that you're a leader in the space of masculinity. And, and I watch some of the stuff that my son brings home from high school, these things he's being taught. And I, you know, I worry a bit that we are lumping all masculinity in with toxic masculinity. And I have to believe that's wrong. So what is, and you referenced this, what is positive masculinity? I think, you know, there's so many words I could throw at it. And typically I tell people, well, you're going to have to define this for yourself. But I think it's just being, you know, if I had to say as a dad, what does that look like? It's being present. It's being loving. It's being joyful. It's being positive. It's being nurturing. You know, all of those things are positive masculinity. Not so much, you know, I'm beating my chest. I can lift a thousand pounds. All of those things are cool, <laughs> right? But, you know, masculinity is more along the lines of being real, being authentic, being vulnerable. You know, if I fell down playing Little League Baseball when I was growing up, somebody would say, just rub it out. Commonly, we joke, you know, don't say ouch. Ball, real ball players don't say ouch, stuff like that. And that's just not true in life. You know, sometimes you just need to sit down and have a good cry. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, you know, hugging it out with another guy. Um, you know, we're built for community. And that's an important thing to note because as men specifically, we're really, really good at isolating. Like yes. 
I, mean, I don't like how everything's gone down. So, and don't get me wrong. It's good to go for a walk in the woods every once in a while, but I'm talking about isolation as a bad tool. Like, I don't want to be around people. I don't want to do this. I'm going to internalize this. And when you do that, and I know this because I've done it, when you internalize the negative, you just feel so horrible inside and you can't quite figure out, well, how am I going to overcome this? It's just sitting inside you bubbling out. Well, on the outside, you're trying to keep it all together, you know? And it's just, ugh, it's yucky. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm guilty of it too. I've done it. Yeah. And I feel like I was trained and taught how to do it as a kid. And my dad, I mean, we, there was no like smack me down. He was a big hugger. Like we hug all the time. Every time I see him, it's hugs. It's been hugs my entire life. It's like, he's been a loving dude. Like he's not, but my coaches, you know, my male teachers, you just kind of go through the whole list. Everyone comes out with this, yes, tough it out. Like, come on grow up, you know, be tough. Right. And that, that's just the normal thing. I'm wondering if, do you work with all ages? I mean, I'm, I have a specific question and I'm wondering if you can answer it about younger men today. Are they expressing more angst around what it means to be a man? Uh, are they expressing, are they worried more about it than some of the older men you work with? Or do you see a difference? Yeah. It's such an interesting question. I find myself talking about this more with some other coaches in the men's community. My quote unquote target market, you know, if I had to say what it is or, you know, are probably guys in their forties and fifties that are trying to figure out, you know, what does that next phase of life look like? What does my legacy look like? I've been down this road here and this is not going the way I want it to go. And what does that look like? But the flip side of that is a lot of these younger kids, and I see this in my own kids, they seem to be a little bit more in touch with their emotions and things than I was when I was their age. Because it wasn't something that we talked about. Like emotion was not on the table. Right. Right. <laughs> like that wasn't something that we were going to talk about. Totally. And they seem to be much more in touch with their feelings and emotions. And they also seem to talk about things that I don't know that me and my buddies would have ever touched on. So that's interesting. And now what worries me is where they're getting their information. You know, we didn't have Google, right. you know, when I was 18, you know, and so there were a lot of things that didn't exist. So how they're getting their information is of some concern. The other concern is, and I, I'm not, pointing fingers when I say this. I'm just talking statistically. The level of divorce in this country is staggeringly bad. The Especially in the minority community, the lack of father presence is horrible. And so we've got a lot of kids that aren't growing up with dads or they're not growing up with full-time dads. And I worry about that from the standpoint of, I think having a male father figure in the house is a very positive thing. I think the nuclear family is a very positive thing. And I understand there's stuff that happens and things can't get worked out, but the statistics coming at us right now are really bad. And so what I see happening with a lot of the young people is they think divorce is normal. I remember coaching little league a number of years ago. And I said to a kid on our team, where's your hat? And he goes, well, it's at my dad's house. Like I was supposed to think that 
to him, that was normal. Like I got stuff at my mom's house. I got stuff at my dad's house. I heard it and I'm like, I, I don't even get what he's saying. Right. Cause I didn't grow up in that environment. And so there's a lot of things pushing against kids. I have on occasion, I'll get a call from a mother and she'll say, so my son needs a lot of help. Now here's the problem with that. In both those cases recently where it happened, it was a divorce situation. There's absolutely no doubt that the son needed a male role model. In both cases, I declined because I said to the mother, will your son come to me and ask me for coaching help? And they were both like, well, I mean, basically, they, my son didn't even know you. I'm making this call. And I'm like, I'm going to have to decline. Not because I, truth be told, it tears me up to say that. Yeah, of course. But I, what, the way I look at it is I need you to ask for help. If you'll ask for help, then I know that there's a good chance you're going to put in the work. If somebody else drags you along, what do you yep. expect's going to happen with me? I'm going to drag you and we're not going to accomplish anything and it's not a good use of our time. So I worry about, you know, things that are going on culturally and there's a lot that our kids are growing up with massive confusion on what's real, what the truth is. I wonder, because I know you work in group and I know that we've talked about this. Most men yeah. have never had another man that they can like confide in. Like this, that just isn't yeah. a normal thing. And I have a few that I, you know, and I'm meeting some more. And so I'm growing that little network of those kind of men. I didn't have that as a kid. I did have a strong father figure that was supportive. Yeah. But you know, you're competitive with your peers when you're a kid. It's, it's, it's <laughs> who can be yeah. faster and tougher and stronger and deal with more stupidity and, you know, this kind of thing. It, have you ever seen anyone successfully create a group program for 18, 19, 20 year old men and sort of help them manage feelings, discuss things openly, be vulnerable with each other? Or do you think that's like a lost cause? I don't think it's a lost cause. I wouldn't chuck it up to a lost cause. It's interesting because it's not something that I've spent a lot of focus on. I think mm. that what tends to happen with that kind of age bracket is we've depended on the church to do that specifically. Years ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the kids are going to, you know, whatever. They're going to youth group and we put them in that way. Well, Again, you look at the statistics, Barna is one of the big groups out there that does a lot of Christian statistics. I mean, people aren't going to church. Right. <laughs> so well, and there's other institutions, Boy Scouts, there's other things where they would have lessons right. of, right? Boy and, and you bring up a great example. So the Boy Scouts of America, the Cub Scouts, all that stuff was just great training ground for what well, it used to just be young boys. Now I guess girls can join too. So great training ground, but I don't think that's gotten any easier for, to recruit in. The, the people that I talk to that are around Boy Scouts, their numbers are way off what they would have been 20, 25 years oh, ago. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that is, again, we got so much going on. When I was growing up in Iowa, we did everything by seasons because you had winter, right? So, you know, you, you couldn't, there are certain things you couldn't do just because of the weather. And so baseball was always during the summer. 
And, you know, we had our schedule during summer and it was about a three month window. And when that was done, it was done now. And I'm picking on baseball a little bit. Now you have a travel baseball season that goes almost the entire year. Right. So you got kids that went from like when I was a kid playing probably no more than 20 games in a summer. Some of these kids from the parents I talked to, they're playing a hundred games a year. You know, you got travel golf tournaments all over. You got travel cheerleading, you got travel this. And so the competition for all this stuff is, you know, unfortunately we've replaced and time with God that I think that these kids desperately need and faith. And we've replaced it with, Athletics. Now, when I was a kid, I probably would have loved it. I mean, athletics was everything to me, but I think we've gotten these kids have so many options. It's A to Z. It's ridiculous. Just in fact, when we get my daughter settled down, it's she hasn't, she's just started class on at the time we're recording this on Monday. She's four days in, and we've already taken a phone call. Hey, during January. I need to go because she's in the musical performance. So during the summer times, these guys can go get jobs at, you know, Dollywood or Branson, Missouri, or the Black Hills up in the, you know, these places that have amusement parks or cruises and all this stuff. So we take a phone call already. It's like, hey, over Christmas in January, I got to go to New York because we have to try out for such and such for the summer job. And I'm thinking, holy cow. We just get her into school and now we got option A, B, and C coming down the pike. And I think that's the society we live in. Unfortunately, what that's creating, and this is, I call this our fast food world that we live in, is everything's fast food. Everything's fast food. We're always racing from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And that's not good. No. It's not good. And we don't slow down and we don't enjoy the journey we're just busy going from one thing to the other and our heads are spinning off as a result. So there's at the same time, there's also this, we get very focused, very young. Like my, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, you probably had the same experience. Like I played baseball, I played basketball, I played soccer, I went skiing, I golfed. I, you know, yep. I, I was involved in six sports, boy yeah, scouts. I was a jack of all trades, master. I, I did it all. Yeah. When, when, my son and my daughter started growing up. They're like, we have to pick a sport when we're nine and we get better at that sport and better <laughs> yeah. at that sport and better yeah. at that sport. And that sport's yeah. year round and it's competitive when we travel and we don't do the other things. And I, so we have so much options, but we're supposed yeah. to get to apply to college. You have to reach an advanced level oh, of something, whatever the thing is, right? Yeah. So we sort of build this, this hyper, hyper, hyper focus on success and we lose the viewpoint of all the other options and things that are out there. And, you know, I just, I think it's important to have all this input, all this stuff. Try this for a bit. I don't like that. Try this. And I think we lose that. You know, it's interesting. And I'm going to use my daughter as an example. Again, she's a very talented musical performer. Her ultimate goal is to be on Broadway. And it's just been such a treat to watch her perform over the years. So when she was going through this process, so her degree program is a BFA. That's a bachelor of fine arts. That is a specialty degree. That is basically like saying I'm going to university of North Carolina to play basketball, or I'm going to Michigan to play football. It is, you are 
in a training field and that's what you're at school to do is to become a performer and they, you know, going to teach you how to do that. And so what's interesting about it is we looked at all kinds of schools and oh, and by the way, when you get those degrees and you get into a program, you have to get into the school, which was not a problem. She was a high academic achiever, but then you have to audition to get into the school. And it's not like you get recruited. So in football, you get recruited at these schools. You got to go audition and yep. it is I know all about just, it, man. Just call me if your kid's in the going down this road. I can give you a lot of help. But, you know, what my daughter finally landed on was, yes, I want to do this, but I want that holistic college experience. In other words, she didn't want to go to school in New York City and be just in New York City at an acting school. She wanted the sorority. She wanted the football program. She wanted all the other activities to be there so that she could get a true college experience. Now, I hope she gets that. What a lot of people don't know, the dirty little secret is that when you become a college athlete or you get into some of these programs, that is your life. Yep. You don't necessarily get that other college experience because you're getting trained all the time. I mean, when your class is over, you're up at a dancing hall or a singing hall and you're working yep. on the next performance so the training just it's just like football you know when you get done with class you're going to when i was in college i was a manager on the basketball team at three o'clock at two o'clock in the afternoon i was there an hour at two o'clock in the afternoon i was down at the gym turning on the lights getting stuff ready for practice and i was there till seven or eight o'clock at night and yep. so it's not your true college experience but that being said i'm grateful that she had the wisdom to decide to try to take all that in as much as she could. And she's going to benefit from that. So to total aside here. So Eli, my son is working on his second album and he has guests artists on there occasionally. So it, your daughter's vocals strong. Oh yeah. We'll connect about that afterwards. I, I, too. I love that. Yeah. That's a good yeah, idea. That's cool. That's awesome. So there's a ton of noise out there and I want to, I want to sort of simplify this. Let's pr pretend for a second. You've got a guy, you know, in a group who struggles with how they define success in their own life. What's just one thing that they can do or focus on that will give them better outcomes? If, John, I'm a big believer that we have it on the inside. You know, it's my job as a coach or a guide to help bring it out. And so I would want to know how that person defines success. What does success look like for them? And then based on their answer, we would figure out what that looks like. You know, believe it or not, I think for success for a lot of people doesn't necessarily look like the biggest boat at the marina, doesn't necessarily look like the biggest house in the neighborhood. I know some people right now are going, what? You know, their life is so short. Yep. It's so tender and, you know, you never know. And I know, you know, this very intimately. Well, Jonathan, when, you know, the people that are, you're going to lose the people around you. And so I don't think we can ever lose sight of that. And as I get older, I tend to choose more wisely. The people that I put around me, the people that I'm exposed to, I like to say in my world, I want more givers around me and fewer takers. Mm. And that's, you know, it's, 
I think about my legacy. I think about the impact I want to have on this world. And I get up every morning trying to move in that direction. And so. Do you think that's something, I mean, I think that generally when we're younger and we're growing up, even maybe through our forties, maybe through our fifties, like we don't think about, we don't introspect, we don't really go inside and say, what's important to us? What does success mean to us? And so I'm imagining that many people that come to you that they're like struggling. I'm not really happy. I'm, you know, maybe, maybe I make enough money, but there's something just off, you know, about what I'm doing. And you say, you know, you need to go deep. You need to go. They're like, what? Like, how do you navigate that? I think what matters to you, what really matters to you? I, you know, it's too many people get caught up in this rat race of, dang, John down the street just got a, wow, that's a pretty nice looking car, you know? And so we just, we get caught up and, you know, it's a dangerous game to play. I had a God moment right as COVID was starting. It's the only way I can call it. I had a big Infinity QX80 and I love that thing, man. I like a big meaty SUV. And I don't even know that we'd had, well, COVID was just becoming a thing. And I remember sitting up in my office at my desk and all of a sudden I was like, why do I need that thing? What, why is that even a thing sitting in my garage? Because I have a big SUV, I could put more gas in it. The tires cost X. Why do I need that? And I went online in that moment and did something I hadn't done in probably over 20 years. I found a used Toyota Camry and I went down to the Ford dealership the next day and traded my car in and bought a used Toyota Camry that my daughter now drives. I'd say that's a Buffett moment. That's what I'd say that is. Yeah. And by the way, Toyota Camrys are great cars. Okay. (laughs) So to this day, I can't with a hundred percent certainty fully grasp why I did that. But other than to say, and that was, again, I mean, we hadn't really shut down yet. It was like, everybody's trying to figure this thing out. It was really early on. I think what has happened to me by doing the really hard work and coming to understand that my identity isn't attached to my job or a house or whatever, my identity is attached to my God, first of all, you know? And so coming to that realization, the things that used to matter to me, like they, they don't matter. Mm. And, you know, when money comes my way, that is my opportunity to impact the world in a bigger way. And I, and to me, that is a much bigger way to think because yeah. we're living in this story that was biblically created and we get to play a part in that story. We all have a little story in the big story and that's pretty cool. And so how do you want that to go down? And that's really doing the work. And why do some people do the work and others don't? Some people don't want to look in the mirror because they're afraid what they might see. Right. It's this whole values, purpose, you know, values, purpose, foundation. You got to be introspective for that. That's like, that's the one thing, right? You to do, be introspective. Now, next question is a follow on. 
What is one thing you see men do that ends up hurting them that they should stop doing? Well, they don't take action on the positive and they just sit and spin in the negative. So Too let much. go of the negative. I mean, the negative is, can you, what, what do you mean by that? Give an example. I think that for me, I always use, a lot of times I use me because I'm not afraid to talk about it. So for me, f for too long, one of the things that I got caught up in was politics for some, mm. whatever reason, like that, like for some crazy reason, that's just going to change the world. And I got way too caught up in it. And when I got caught up in it, then it was, I'm right, you're wrong all mm -hmm. the time. I'm right, you're wrong. There's no way that you're right. And what that created was anger, absolute anger. Like, I can't believe anybody would be that stupid that they would believe that way. Like, I wasn't even open to an argument. I think you're talking about 80% of the country right now. <laughs> Probably. But, you know, <laughs> what I've learned to do was what I, what I realized was how caught up mm -hmm. I was in all that. And I just released it. Yep. I released it. And so the funny thing of it is, I went from just like this avid news junkie to the other night, I walked in and my wife walked in the living room and I went, I don't even know what's going on in the world. And I flipped it over the news. And what tends to happen is I listen to about five minutes and then I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And then I, I flip it off. It's like, it's like enough. And the funny thing of it is because I've done the work on myself, I don't need that anymore. Mm. And I don't, and I've come to realize that most of what they're talking about is just sensationalism to sell advertising anyway. So they're not looking out for me. The only person that's going to look out for me is me. And I think that's an important thing for, you know, everybody, but the men that I work for to realize is that you got to take control over your own life because nobody else is going to look out for you. Right. They're, they're worried about themselves. And I don't mean that to sound selfish, but I mean, at the end of the day, you are in control of your mind, your body, what you say, what you do. And if you don't take action to be present and positive, you know, there's probably an alternative and nobody's going to want to be around you. Your relationships will be bad. Your jobs will probably be bad. I, you know, people want to be around people that are full of joy, have a smile on their face and have integrity and do what they say they're going to do. And some of that sound, stuff sounds really basic, but it's true today as it ever has been. Yeah, for sure. At the same time, I mean, I don't disagree with that, but I want to bring in something we talked in talked about earlier and there is a very distinct inequality that we can see there's a very distinct and it's getting a lot more press today so that so the fact that people feel left behind feeds the other side you know it feeds the anger it feeds the political rage it feeds all this stuff so to the extent i think you're saying this that you can divorce from that you can separate from just the engagement in the crazy and say, okay, what can I do? What are the actions well, I can take? That's yeah, what we got to do. I don't mean this to get into a political discussion, but I think it is a good example. Yeah. 
how much I'll just say that there's a right and a wrong way to come over the border. You're either legal or you're <laughs> illegal. Okay. How much energy is wasted on putting people on a bus and shipping them off to another city? That's ridiculous. That's to prove what point. Right. And so basically what we've said is, you know, well, we're not going to, who's taking care of anybody that's poor. Now, criminals coming over the border, problem. Most of the people coming over the border want a good life. Yep. They want a good life. Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it, okay? There just is. They want a good life. Why would you leave someplace and come to someplace different? Because they know what we have here. This is the greatest country on earth. And what's interesting is when I talk to people that have come to this country from other countries, you know, that live here now, I'm floored at how much more patriotic they are than the average American. Right. It's interesting. You know, and so this is the greatest country in the world. Everybody wants to come here. Well, mostly. Although when I was over in Ireland, it's very nice. But but they got their own challenges over there. But, you know, a lot of people want to come here, as they should, you know. But I, what I don't like seeing going on, and this goes on on both sides of the aisle, so I'm not picking on one or the other here, is we waste energy that doesn't need to be wasted. My question is, how do we take care of each other rather than pointing fingers at each other? You know, when we find leaders that figure out how we can all unify and stop putting silos around everything, now we're on to something. Yeah. So I guess I need to run for public office. I don't know. Oof. I thought about it. I'm, I nixed that idea. Too much pain. Hey, before yeah. we wrap up, is there anything people don't know about you that you really want them to know? I always use this because it's so much fun. I'm a huge fan of indie race cars. I don't know why. It just, I know that sounds funny. I once told my wife, I'm like, you know, when I pass away, just spread my ashes at the speedway. I love cars. I love watching, you know, some of these car shows and these old muscle cars. And, and someday I'd love to have a, you know, 68, 69, roughly time frame Ford Camaro. Mustang. Must I'm a Mustang guy. Uh, I'm, see, I'm I, I love the 69 Camaro, man. But I <laughs> fell in love with Indy race cars. I had an uncle in Indiana and when we were kids, we visited there and then we went to a couple of races and I absolutely fell in love with it. And I love those things. And so actually for a birthday several years ago, my wife bought me the Mario Andretti driving school and I got to hop in one of those cars at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And I did top out at 158 miles an hour. And it's literally one of the most scary experiences of my life and thrilling at the same time, if that's possible. I had a client, this is probably 15 years ago, who raced around the Sears Point and he had a car and he raced Sears Point. And he said, Jonathan, want to ride along? I'm like, absolutely. That'd be so fun. Never again. That being a passenger going 150 miles per hour around S curves, that is, yeah. that is so. so terrifying. What's interesting is when you do this, you're sitting, you know, they start you in pit lane. And I remember looking all the way down pit lane and all you can see is the outside wall of the turn. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the world did I get myself roped up in? And then the interesting part is while you're out on the track, they have a professional driver in a two seater taking people around the track. 
Now you have to hit dots in the turns and you have to stay within those in that area because the professional drivers on above that. So you can't go above where those dots are because you'll take some dude out. Now, when you're going 150 miles an hour and you see somebody pass you like you're standing still, <laughs> that is quite a thrill. But I got to say, I literally thought I was going to get out of the car and see people laughing and pointing fingers because it didn't feel like I was going that fast. So I got out of the car and I thought, man, I bet I didn't get up over 65. I, I really thought I thought I was going to get out of the car and people were going to be laughing and pointing at me. And so I was quite shocked at how fast I actually went because they don't put speedometers in there. You don't know. No. You have no idea. Yeah. You, you, after the fact, you can learn. So if you could get the truth about any single question in your life, I'm not, I can't give you the answer, but if you knew you'd ask this question, you get the truth, what would be your question? If I could get the truth, my instinct was like, who shot JFK? I have a lot of questions for Jesus. I don't even know where to start. I mean, I just have so many questions for Jesus. And I, it really stems from just, you know, what I do and how it all started and came about. And I'm fascinated that one man could walk the face of the earth and disciple 12 and create hmm. a world of believers. The first men's group. Yeah. It literally was the first men's group. And so I've become quite fascinated by that. Well, you know, what was that like? What was it like for the disciples to walk around with Jesus for 12 years? Hmm. What was that question. like? I mean, you know, we can look into scripture and we get sneak peeks, but you know, it's like, what was really going on? What were they saying to each other? Like, God, can you believe that? I mean, yeah, when, I, the cam when the cameras weren't rolling, what were they saying? Yeah. Right. What, I want to know what, the off stuff. So let people know how to connect with you. Yeah. Oh, you can always send me an email, mike at truemanlifecoaching.com. And my website is truemanlifecoaching.com. And always, we're always working on the website. My podcast is on there, the blog. I mean, we're always adding something on there in my books. So I've got some collaborative books that I've been a part of and my own book, which we're, I'm really getting pushed on to get finished here before the end and get that thing out for Christmas. So it's a work in progress. So it's all up on my website though. Great. Good luck on completing the book. And thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me on. I had a blast, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.